0: So we're going to jump in today. we got some work to do as we wrap up, and I wanted to let you know, um, if you're new to New Community, this is a church that I'm learning this week is setting the pace in multiple contexts. I'm just really proud because this week someone informed me that the Philadelphia Flyers hockey team actually introduced a brand new mascot, and uh, they took their inspiration from us because the mascot's name is Gritty. Now, I want you to go ahead and see this picture. This is Gritty. Quite terrifying, the description, if you read it online, and there's some hilarious stuff out there, some of it's not all appropriate, but about how he has emerged from the bowels of the arena where they play, and they don't, he's just a little disturbing, that's, that's gritty. I don't know if that's what grit looks like, personified or not, um, but that, that, is, that is gritty. You can remove it from the screen. Now, um, we have had a great time over the past several weeks exploring the book of Ruth and thinking about what grit looks like. And I thought as we started today, I wanted to, because this illustration came to my mind, and I wanted to just kind of gauge the audience. How many of you are Saturday Night Live fans? Like you're, okay, so like three three more than there were first service. So not a lot is is what we're, some of you just don't stay up that late, I understand. There's a character on Saturday Night Live named Penelope. Now Penelope is a character who compulsively one-ups people, right? She's the type of person who wherever she goes, she has to just, you know, proclaim and let it be known how much better than everybody else she is so i want you to see a clip of penelope then we're going to talk about jesus and you understand now everyone i would like to introduce for the very first time ever mr and mrs nicole and steve parker Thanks for coming, everyone. Uh, It means so much that you're all here tonight. Yeah, but don't drink too much. I still have to pay for the honeymoon. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I just got back from my honeymoon. We went to the moon, actually. It's made of honey. Well, uh, enjoy your dinners, everyone. What was she doing up there? That is so rude. June, relax, okay? Let's just have a good time. Why don't you clink your glass so they have to kiss? You love doing that at weddings. I do love seeing people kiss at weddings. is ruining this entire reception. Look, you making a scene isn't gonna make it any better. Well, she's ruining their day. This is my day, so I bought it from the government. It's National Penelope Day in 14 countries. The children celebrate by running into the streets. The post office is closed, but I still get my mail. Really? Honey? Wow. National Penelope Day? Well, you know what, the month of June was actually named after me. And um, you know what else? Uh, Every night before I go to sleep, I take my feet off, and if I close my eyes real tight, I can, um, oh, I can watch Toy Story on my eyelids. And my mom's a roller coaster, and I was born in the, uh, in the 1930s. So, um, what do you have to say about that, Penelope? <laughs> well, I guess all I can say is that before I go to sleep, my feet take me off, and they go to bed. <laughs> and when I close my eyes really tight, I can watch movies on demand. I can choose whatever I want. <laughs> it's free, because I know a guy. My mom has six flags my dad's bush garden. <laughs> and whenever I want to I can turn into a black and white movie star from the 1930s. Are you serious? Are you are you kidding me right okay, now? I why don't we just go relax instead? You some know what? Air, okay? Let's go to the bar. I need drinks. I do not Absolutely. come with us. Let's just go. I don't need to go to the bar cuz I already had 50 margaritas. So I'm the question is, line. how many of you actually know a Penelope? You, you don't have to say who they are. Don't look at your spouse if it's them. If you don't know one, you may be one. I'm just, just throwing that out. Um, here's the reality. We've all known those people. We've all known people that are tough to put up with. It's like every part of the world revolves around them. Something about them is always better than us. But here's the harder question, okay? You may not be as outward and obnoxious with it, but how many of you see yourself in Penelope? Because when I, when I thought about that character this week, I thought, you know, that's, that's a lot of times what I do. I end up living like I know the scientific theories about what the way the world works in the universe and everything spins around. Like, but I think like I'm the center of the universe a lot of the time, and I catch myself feeling like, well, my my problems are the biggest problems ever faced. Nobody's ever faced bigger problems than mine. I'm not spinning my hair, but that's what I feel. Or or I feel like my questions for God are the most important questions that have ever been asked. Or like whatever outcome I'm looking for in life is the only way that my world can maybe move forward. And what we've been talking about over the past three or four weeks is the idea that there's this thing called grit. And grit is the way that we live life with this, this unique combination of passion and perseverance. That's how I would define grit, is that it's this passion and perseverance that comes together to push us through whatever, whatever we're facing. And so we said, as we have explored the book of Ruth, we said that, first of all, grit is this gift, right? For the Christ follower, grit is a gift that God gives us in the form of the Holy Spirit. That at least part of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives is help carry us through things and face things with something that doesn't give up, and it's always with us. And then we said a couple weeks ago that grit often is found most in the scraps of our lives, that it's found in the places where we're broken. It's found in the places where we see God's presence, and because we're persevering, that grit begins to emerge, and then last week we said that there's actually this scandal of grit, that it's something that doesn't make sense to our world today. If you were to look at our world and our world were to look at grit and say that, that just, we don't understand because it's formed on courage and risk and integrity and honor and these Christ-centered friendships that push us forward in life. And today I want to I wrap up this series by saying something simply to you. The simple way to say it is you aren't Penelope, okay? Just look at your neighbor, you can say that, you aren't Penelope, you just don't. just say it nicely, you don't have to be harsh about it. The theological way is to say it's hard to live with grit if the world revolves around you. It's going to be hard for you to face the world with grit and perseverance and passion if the world is always revolving around you. Throughout this series, we've, we've looked at the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, if, if you haven't been with us, is in the Old Testament. It's four chapters, a really short book, and it tells this incredible story. And the central character is not Ruth. It's a woman named Naomi. And Naomi is this Israelite woman who has to leave Israel with her husband because there's a fam- famine, and her two sons, and they go into enemy territory. And basically what happens is that while Naomi's there, her husband dies, Her sons marry Moabite women, and then the sons die about 10 years later. And she has no no one to carry on her lineage. There are no grandchildren. She has no sons, and she has absolutely no hope. And so she looks at her daughters in law. She says, We have to go back. I have to go back to Israel. There's food there. We can be taken care of. You stay here because I can't provide for you there. Because to be a widow coming home, she had no hope. She would have been considered a peasant. And so one of the daughters-in-law says, that's logical. I'm going to stay here. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth, she says, no, I'm going with you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And we see Ruth as this just incredibly gritty character in this story. And that's chapter one. Naomi shows up at home and she says, I'm hopeless. I have nothing left. And then we go to chapter two, and, and, and Naomi and Ruth work together, and Ruth actually says, I have to get food for us." She goes to the fields of, of, a, of a wealthy landowner, and she practices what in the Israelite culture was known as gleaning. And so when someone would harvest their land, they would leave the scraps for the poor people. And those people would come alongside, and they would pick up the scraps, and that would be the best that they had. And so Ruth goes to practice the gleaning, and while she's there, we meet the third character of this book named Boaz, and Boaz is the landowner, and Boaz is a man of high integrity and high honor, and we told, we're told that he notices Ruth, that he takes notice of this beautiful Moabite woman and says, I have to help her, I have to provide for her. And so she goes home and tells Naomi, and Naomi starts to hope again. And in the third chapter, Naomi says, I've got this plan. And I'm just telling you, if you missed last week, you got to go listen to the podcast because this is a weird plan, right? And I don't have time to explain it. She says, go to where Boaz is harvesting on the threshing floor, and when he falls asleep, lay down at his feet. I know, it's weird. But she does that, and she basically surrenders and says, I am willing to be your wife, if you will redeem us, because we found out that Boaz is what's called a Goel. He's a kinsman redeemer. He's someone whose family is related to Naomi. And he has the right, if he wants, if he will, to actually take care of Ruth and Naomi. And in chapter three, we we find out that Boaz says, I am your redeemer, but there's another redeemer. And he says, He's he's a little bit older. He's a little bit closer to you. He's maybe not who you'd want to marry, but I have to to see if he will do his duty first before I can do what I want. And so Ruth goes home and she tells Naomi in verse 18 of chapter three, here's what it says. Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And that's where we left off last week was this cliffhanger of what's gonna happen? Is the old wrinkly guy gonna marry Ruth or is Boaz gonna get to marry Ruth? What's gonna happen? And we're going to pick this up in chapter 4. Look at verse 1. Here's what it says. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as, and you can underline that, highlight it, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and he said, sit here. And they did so. So here's what's going on. This is Hardy's at 6 a.m., okay? Are you with me? Many of you know this scene, what I mean. If you go to Hardy's at 6 a.m., you're going to see the men gathered, and they're hanging out, and they're reading the papers. And when they get done talking and complaining about politics and the weather, then they're going to move on to substantial conversation. And so Boaz shows up, and we're told that just as the same, the Redeemer, the Goel, arrives. And he says, sit down and let's talk. And Boaz has brought elders with him. Now, I love that phrase, just as. Because it reminds us that God is at work. We don't see God mentioned in this book of Ruth very much at all, but we know that God is at work. In chapter 1, verse 22, we're told that as Ruth arrived back in Bethlehem, she arrived as the barley harvest was beginning. It just so happened that the barley harvest was beginning. And in chapter 2, as she's gleaning in the fields during the barley harvest, it says, just then Boaz arrived. And here in chapter 4, we're told just as the guardian redeemer came along. So I think there's a principle from this that we can learn. And it says this, God operates in the as moments of our life. God operates in the places where you're saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how I'm going to move forward. But this is as this is happening, it feels like God is doing something. So I've seen God show up in people's lives as the cancer was diagnosed. Seeing God make himself known and present as the grief is overwhelming. I have friends who have been through incredible brokenness and they're worshiping God as the grief is overwhelming. I, I see it as the marriage at times is breaking down that will, God will show up and, and create rescue and redemption. Or as life seems hopeless, God operates in the as moments of our lives. And so Boaz, as he he shows up, like I said, he brings these officials. This is government business. This is communal policy at its best at Hardee's at 6 a.m. That's what's going on. Look at verse 3. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Now understand, this is official, formal language. This is Boaz saying, hey, there's this this property, and you can get it at a good rate because you're the closest relative. And the guy says, that sounds great. Why wouldn't I do that? But as much as this anonymous, we never get his name, this anonymous family relative wants it, there's more to the story. Look at verse 5. This is where Boaz drops the other bomb. Boaz says, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. The translation there is, my wife would be really unhappy if I had another wife. Okay, that's kind of what's being said. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. See, tied directly to the land was a right and a duty to Ruth. Neither Boaz or this man were absolutely required to do it, but it would demonstrate their character and their integrity and raise their honor in a shame-based community. See, it was all about what we've talked about for several weeks now, this said, this kindness, this loyalty. It wasn't about the law. It was about the spirit of the law. And this man can't do it because it might endanger his own estate, See, here, here's, here's the principle from this that I, that I love. Someone else shouldn't have to do what God has called you to do. You can't expect someone else to be obedient to the things that God has set forward for you to do. God has called you to obedience. Grit gives you the courage to do it. Here's the theological, as your pastor, here's the really theological statement that I wanna tell you as your pastor. I ain't doing your job. Okay, okay. I ain't doing your job. There are people in your life, in your world, in your realm of influence that God has set up for you to impact with the gospel of Christ. And it is not your pastor's job to impact them. When we get to the series wonky, I've got a whole week. It's titled, This Ain't Your Church, and I Ain't Your Preacher. Some of you are like, I'm not coming back. Okay. (laughs) The reality is this this guy looks at Boaz and he says, I'm not messing up my house. To do your job. I'm not going to take away from you what God is calling you to do. And I want you to know that. As your pastor, I love you. I will serve you. I want to lead in the best way possible. But I ain't messing up my house to do what God's called you to do. I'm not going to sacrifice my kids on the altar of ministry because you are not being obedient. There are people in your lives right now that I will not and have not ever known. And God has ordained for you to impact them with the gospel of Christ. That's the calling, and grit is going to carry you through into that. I thought about it this way, and you don't have to amen out loud, okay, but if you feel the need, maybe. Our church can always get better. Keep the amens quiet, okay? We can always get better. There's things that we need to improve. There's things that we need to work on. Some of you are like, yeah, how about the roof? I get it, okay? Stop talking about the leaks, Maybe the children's ministry doesn't feel the way that you think it should, or when you're welcomed here, it doesn't feel the way, or it hasn't felt the way, or the food is different, or, you know, I know they're looking for volunteers. Whatever it is, our church can always get better. But here's my question. What if you're the answer to your own complaint? You ever think about that? I mean, can you imagine how, like, if we shifted the thinking, it's the old lesson, like you're pointing a finger, and they're all pointing, they used to say four pointing back at you. I was like, no, three in a thumb. But what if you're the answer to your own complaint? What if there's a reality that something is calling you to step in and change and transform. So here in this moment of refusal on this other Goel's part, we get the next strange statement. This is where it gets weird. Hang with me. Verse 7, it says this. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and the transfer of property to become final, like a contract, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. Wouldn't that be cool if we did that today? I'm buying this house. Here's my sandal. (laughs) This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. So this is weird, right? This is a strange moment where this contract is legally happening because the guy takes off his sandal and says, the land and Ruth are yours. I, I know, progressively, this is not a good passage, okay? I get that, but hang with me. Here's where it comes from. In Deuteronomy 25, we're told in the law of Moses that this was directly related to the loss of family members. The text in Deuteronomy says this, that if there are two brothers, one is married and, and and the brother dies, who's married, that the other brother has an obligation to marry that widow, to redeem his brother's name, to carry that forward. And here's what we're told: here's what it says. That if the man refuses, the woman can go and petition the elders of the community and they can come and talk to the man. And if he still resists, this is what I love, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face. Ladies, can I get an amen? Spit in his face and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known, watch the burn, in Israel as the family of the unsandaled ooh, if you don't do your job, you don't do your obligation, I get to pull your sandal off, spit in your face, and call your family for the rest of life. The family of the unsandal. It's like Monty Python. That's what it reminds me of. So don't miss this. The Jews would have known the loss of a sandal as a moment of shame brought onto a family because a man would not live with the honor he was required to have. It would shame not only him, but his family for the rest of his life. This wasn't just about one man not doing his job. This was about an entire family being shamed forever. You could say that to neglect the duty of your calling was to bring shame on your reputation, on your family's reputation. So a life of faith in Yahweh without grit towards the sake of the other would equate to a lack of faith. You could say Yahweh's identity, God's identity for the Jews was always about how they interacted with the world around them. Can I just say, if we took that to heart, Christians, if you're a Christian here, the perception of Christians in the world would change incredibly. If we took it to heart that the way our faith plays out from our head is to interact in the world With love. But in Ruth, we're told that this cultural practice was also transferring a sandal to show that the contract had been signed. It was like signing on the dotted line. So here, this Redeemer hands his sandal to Boaz. He gives up his rights for the sake of Boaz and Ruth, not with shame, but with great honor. And we're going to come back to that. So Boaz receives the sandal. I I don't know what he did with the sandal, but he runs off and they get married. And the elders of the town bless Ruth and Boaz. And we would think that the story ends here, but remember, The main character of this story isn't Ruth and it isn't Boaz, it's Naomi, a widowed, hopeless, empty, and barren woman who returns to Israel empty and bitter. Remember when she came back and she said, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made my life bitter and empty. I went away full and I'm coming back with nothing. She's in desperation, she's in depression. But Ruth refused to leave her, and Ruth chose grit. And in the presence of such grit, Naomi began to dream again, to hope and to scheme for the good of Ruth. She began to find her own grit. So this story in Ruth wouldn't nearly be complete if it didn't wrap up Naomi's story. Verse 13 says this. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Now this has been a long time waiting for Ruth, right? She married in Moab. She waited 10 years with no children, no hope, no way of carrying on family legacy. And now God gives her a son. And I would think at that moment that the writer would say, so Ruth held her baby close and the neighbors came around and they celebrated what God had done for Ruth. But watch what happens. The women at that point said to Naomi, take us back to the central character. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life. He will sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. See, I picture Ruth holding the baby, but the author turns attention back to Naomi and says, you have to understand the scope of this story. See, I want you to think about this. Chapter one is a story of, of tragedy and loss. It's a story of a woman who loses not only her husband, not only her hope of grandchildren, but her sons as well. And she returns home after a famine saying, I am completely empty. And yet, in the midst of that tragedy and loss, there's loyalty and kindness that pours out from Ruth. She says, I'll be with you. I got you, and I'm not going anywhere. That's chapter one. Chapter two is this this act of kindness and loyalty on the part of Boaz. Boaz says, sure, you can glean in my fields and you can can have more than enough. I'm gonna take care of you. You're safe. And it's the hope of someone who steps in and says, I will be your redeemer. I will help, but we have to see what happens. And chapter three is another act of kindness and loyalty on the part of Boaz to Ruth to say, I would love to marry you. I would love to take you as my wife. This is a beautiful story, but we have to see what God does. We have to surrender our place plans to God's will and do what we can. And then we come to this chapter 4 and the story that started with tragedy and death, emptiness, and now has been carried through with kindness and loyalty and faithfulness. Chapter 4, Boaz meets this man in town and what we see as Naomi holds this child is that everything that was empty in her has now been reversed. Everything has been redeemed. Everything that was gone, everything that was bitter has now been filled. Look at verse 16. Then Naomi took the child in her arms, and she cared for him. The women living there, the same women. Listen, don't miss this. The same women that were standing there when Naomi said, I'm empty, I'm bitter, I got nothing left. These women are now there again saying, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, one of the greatest kings in all of Israel's history. And what a beautiful moment. What an incredible scene where Naomi, who was broken, sees the reversal of her misfortunes. See, grandparents in the room understand this. Grandparents understand that with your children, you're surviving. Amen? Your prayer is, God, don't let me kill them. I want to get to heaven someday, and I hope they live long enough that, that, that I can get there. Like, just help me to get through. And you love your kids, and you pour into your kids, but you're fighting the battle for their heart and for their life. But grandparents, I'm told, hold those grandbabies and go, this is so much better. I'm told often how much better this is. The grandchildren are amazing because I can give them back, and everything's good. And they're a gift in their life and their joy. And maybe you lose some things with your kids along the way, but you love them, but it hurts. But with grandchildren, Naomi, who's lost everything, says, I've, given, I've been given more than enough in return. It's the exact opposite of her cry of emptiness. And this beautiful story of Ruth in this book, listen, this story of love and romance and adventure and and mysterious, what's going to happen, what's God going to do, ends amazingly with a list of names. Yay! It's a genealogy that ends the book of Ruth. And we go, why, why, why would there be a genealogy? Listen, I want you to count these names as I read them. I want you to hear this. This is how the book ends. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Now, count these names. That's one. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. Now, how many names did you get? Well done, church. That's what, you pass the quiz for the day. You all get gold stars. Why 10 names? Why does that matter? Why does the author of Ruth, Ruth say, let's end with a genealogy. It's going to be perfect. Why does he do that? Because I want you to think about this. When Naomi's sons married the Moabite women and her husband dies, she held out hope for grandchildren, and she waited, and she waited, and she waited for 10 years, 10 years, you know what I think the author is subversively communicating here? Is that for every year of emptiness, every year of loss, every year of brokenness, every year of suffering, every year of wondering if God would show back up, now there are 10 generations proving God has filled back every one of those years. This is a beautiful story. The hopelessness has been restored. But we can't end there. I've got to end with one more genealogy. You guys can maybe turn the TV off back there. I know we're struggling with TVs today. Because genealogy of King David, Israel's greatest king, isn't the end story. It actually goes further in the book of Matthew to tell a genealogy of King Jesus. And this is what it says, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brother's father. Abraham had many sons. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Sam. And Sam, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, by the way, a prostitute. She makes it into Jesus' genealogy. Pretty cool. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. And then it goes way down farther and says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, married the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Now, why would I spend so much time reading names to you in a sermon? That seems like bad strategy on my part, unless I want to shrink the church. Because this is the thing that I want you to pull out today. The one thing that I want you to grab onto, your story of grit has never been just about you. The way that you fight for grit in your life has never been just only, merely, at least about you. It has always been a part of God's bigger story. The things that God wants you to fight through, that God wants you to carry on, that God wants you to persevere with faith and courage and risk and honor and integrity has always been not just about you, but about generations after you. You see, Ruth lived in the late 12th century B.C. That was between three to four hundred years before King David was ever born. And it was about 1,300 years before Jesus ever lived. But the grit shown by Ruth and by Boaz and by Naomi would impact thousands of years following them. And the fact that you're sitting here today, what if Ruth had said, you're right, I should stay in Moab. I should just stay put. What if Boaz says, this is really questionable. I can't marry this woman. Forget it. The Jews would have never had King David, the greatest king they ever knew. We would not have had Jesus. We would have missed out on salvation. Just think about this for a minute. Can you imagine going to Sunday school and the story being, yeah, the Israelites were God's people, but then they met this giant named Goliath and he killed them all. Without King David, that's the story. That's the story we get. God wanted to rescue people, but Ruth said no, so there was no Jesus. See, a lot of us, we're we're choosing to live lives as if Penelope is driving the inner voice in our head going, our world is all about me and how do I survive? And God is going, listen, I want you to survive right now. I want you to persevere right now. I want you to stay passionate right now. But this story isn't about you. You're not the center of your universe. Your story is about generations after you, that your great, 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 great grandchildren will be transformed because you fought the good fight. Because you fought the battle, because you ended brokenness, because you killed the legacy of pain that has been in your life. And now God can do something amazing because you were gritty in this moment. That's the story that I want to live into. Now, this is where I wish this genealogy ended and changed just a bit. And this is where I'm going to wrap up today. I wish the guy who lost his sandal got a little more attention. I wish, I wish I knew his name. I wish the genealogy was like it was the father of so-and-so, the father of Boaz, who got a sandal from a guy on a street corner at Hardy's. Like He got the sandal, and then he got Ruth, and then that was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Like That's where we ended up. I wish the guy was in the genealogy because here's the reality. He gave up his shoe for the sake of the world. He gave up his shoe for the sake of the world. So today, I want to invite you to a tribe of people that I believe have the power to change the world, and it's what, this is what I'm going to call it. This is going to sound weird. You ready? The order of the unsandaled. The order of the unsandaled. Because when you surrender your soul for the sake of the world, your story of grit is never just about you. What decisions are you making today that will change the world tomorrow? Change your legacy tomorrow. In the scriptures, th- think about this. I, w- I want you to consider this. Those who end up barefoot have these incredible encounters right you have Moses walking through the wilderness minding his own business tending his sheep and he's walking around and I think he's probably thinking like what am I going to eat for dinner tonight these sheep like these are cool like but what am I going to eat what's going on and all of a sudden he comes on a burning bush and the bush is burning but it doesn't burn up and he hears the voice of God and the first thing God says to him is what take your shoes off you're on holy ground lose your shoes Like, this is sacred space. Take your shoes off because I'm going to have you set thousands, hundreds of thousands of Israelites free from slavery in Egypt. Now, what if Moses was like, but I like my shoes. I'm outside. Come on, God. Can't I just leave them on? But see, he t- takes his shoes off and enters the sacred space. And then we see so many thousands of years later, Jesus, a- a- on the night before he goes to the cross, on the night before his disciples would watch him be beat more savagely and killed more savagely than anything they'd ever seen, nails put through his wrists and his feet, he stoops down and he washes their bare feet. He washes the bare feet of the disciples. This is holy space, sacred moments, surrendered faith so I'm going to ask you to do something really strange as we end the service today and many of you are not going to do it and that's okay I'd love for you to take a shoe off some of you just went "What? what what just happened here how do I get out of this church there's no human sacrifice coming I promise like this is not a weird it's weird but it's not that weird I want you to understand something Several years ago, one of the marathons that I ran was in Washington, D.C., and we were about 20 miles in, and I'm running across this bridge. It's a metal bridge. It, it, it's got this, this graded kind of holes in it, and it's, it, it's just awful. I'm 20 miles in. My feet are hurting, as you would expect, and I'm going, what in the world? Why, why am I doing this? This is dumb. And as I'm complaining and, and fretting and trying to stress and get through this, this guy flies past me, like just absolutely flying. And I'm like, man, that guy's going fast 20 miles into this race. And I look down and the guy is completely barefoot. Now, most of you have not taken your shoe off. Come on, a little more compliance here. That was a crowd participation thing. He's running past me and he's completely barefoot. And he's running 26.2 miles on bare feet. To this day, I don't know why. I don't know what he was trying to prove. But the image stuck in my head and I went, every pain that I'm feeling, he is feeling it more deeply than I am. And I got nothing to complain about. He's feeling the world below him in a way that I will never understand. And see, what I'm inviting you today is the order of the unsandaled to say, what do you need to feel in your world? What do you need to fight through in your world? Because when you shed that shoe, you go, I have put my foot in a place that I'm going to feel something more deeply than I ever have. And I want it to remind you, I want it to sit in deeply in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, that our walk of faith is with grit. It's a barefoot walk. It's a walk that says, God, I will do whatever you call me to. I won't quit fighting. I won't give up. I'm going to have passion. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to go after this. I'm going to have courage and risk and honor and the battles for integrity. I'm going to fight. I'm going to chase you, whatever the cost, whatever it means. I'm going to go after you. And today I'm inviting you, as that shoe is off your foot symbolically, that in your heart you're saying, God, I'll surrender my rights to you. And so, Lord, would you lead me in this way? What are you facing right now that takes grit? Where do you need holy space in your life that God might say, listen, I know it's painful, but it's holy ground. Take your shoes off. And feel the weight of this. Feel the pressure of this. Feel the tension of this more deeply. Don't run from it. Don't give up on it. Don't have that spiritual gift that your culture has of quitting. Don't quit. Just keep going. Keep feeling it. Keep running the race that I've marked out for you because it's going to carry you to a place that three or four or ten generations from now, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your community is going to look back and go, my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother or grandfather, they made a decision not to quit and now I'm following Jesus, now I'm going after Christ and my family is healing and we're walking through things that are incredible because they took their shoes off. They surrendered to the sacred place that demanded pain and strength and perseverance. Let's stand and pray together.